It is a pleasure to be with you, especially as we are kicking off a brand new series. And I think it's only right that before we dive into that series, we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have indeed come to give us light in the midst of darkness. Light to reveal the truth, light that we might walk by it. And so we ask that as we come before your word, you would again give us that light, that you would give us open minds and hearts to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in the book of Psalms, there's a little song about family. And that song goes a little something like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. A song about family that for us as modern readers sounds really weird. Let's be honest. These images that this songwriter is using are just so bizarre to us. I mean, it starts with talking about how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like oil on the head, running on the beard, and running down the collar of Aaron's robes. And for many of us, we listen to that and we're just like, oil on the beard and the robes, like, does that wash out? Like, what is that? Like, why would you use that image? Or... Or it's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Like, what's the big deal about dew? I mean, like, I see that every spring and summer when I get up in the morning. It's all over my grass. Like, why use these images? But for, first, uh, but, but for the first uh, people who read these words, who sung these words, ancient peoples, these words had profound symbolic meaning. Because you see, that first image of the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, harkens all the way back to the book of Exodus and to the Torah, where God told the people to, to create a tabernacle, a tent in their midst, where his presence would dwell. And he appointed Moses' brother Aaron to be the first high priest. And when Aaron was appointed as high priest, he was anointed with a specific kind of fragrant oil. And what's amazing about this oil is that this oil was only to be used by the high priest and no one else. No one else was allowed to use this particular kind of sweet-smelling oil and perfume. And, and the reason why is because it was to symbolize to Aaron that when he walked into the Holy of Holies, he was in the presence of God. But it was also to symbolize to the people that God was in their midst. I mean, can you imagine that every time the high priest is walking through the camp, people would get like a smell this, this certain beautiful fragrance that they would only experience when the high priest was among them. It was a sign of their relationship with God, that God was with his people, that the divine presence was in their midst to watch over them and guide them. It is a sign of beautiful and profound blessing. Or think about this second image, this uh, reference to the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Imagine that you are a person living in the Middle East, this dry and arid place. But the only way that you would get life-giving water is if dew falls upon the mountains and runs down in streams to the cities. It's a symbol of life. 
of life-giving streams in dry places. And really what the songwriter is saying here is that there is nothing more divine, nothing more blessed, nothing more life-giving than when people dwell together in unity. Beautiful images that highlight how amazing it is when families in particular and people in general live at peace. You know, we look at that song and it's just like, that is a great song. That is something that I would love to see in my own family. It's something that I'd love to see in my community. It's something I'd love to see in my nation and in my workplace. This desire to see people living in harmony and at peace with one another, I think is something that we all long for. And yet, if we're really honest, we look in the mirror at how our current relationships are going, we have to admit, oftentimes we fight with our spouses and our siblings, we argue at our uh, workplaces, and now we even have social media where we can have fights there too. You can even like your favorite fight. You can even comment on your favorite fight and join in. We live in a world where relationships are not experienced as a blessing, where it's not like precious oil running down upon our head, but rather it's more like an anvil beating against our skulls. We look at these and it, it makes me think of like that, uh, that Dr. Seuss book, Hop on Pop, right? Where it says, day play, we play all day, night fight, we fight all night. Sure that there were some of us who uh, for uh, Christmas this year with the extended family didn't really feel like a silent night. It felt like a night fight. And oftentimes, I think this is how we enter into relationships. I don't think most people wake up in the morning and they're just like, man, I'm going to get into it with so-and-so today. I think we start with saying, no, I want this to be about a day of play. I want to get along with people. I want to, I, I want to you know, get along with my spouse and my kids and my coworkers and, and my extended family. But then we get to the end of the day, and what is it? Nothing but night fights. We go to the end of the day and it just seems to end in conflict. And we get discouraged and we wonder, how is it that we can possibly bring healing in a world where there's so much division? Which is why this series that we're kicking off this weekend is so important. We're calling it a reconciler's journey. Because becoming a person of peace really is a journey. It's not an overnight process. It's not like we suddenly flip a few switches and, and magically everything is fine. Rather, it's a journey that we go on as we're formed as certain kinds of people. And to help us in this journey, over the next several weeks, we're actually going to be looking at the story of a family. A family uh, that we're introduced to in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And it's the family of Abraham. And the reason why this family is so important is because basically Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11 is a story of ongoing conflict. That from the moment we turn our backs on God in the Garden of Eden, all the way through the story of Noah and the Tower of Babel, human history is simply characterized by one violent struggle after another. And yet in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to this family, this family of Abraham, where God makes this incredible promise. God says to Abraham, through your family, I am going to bless all the families of the earth. Through your family, I am going to give a blessing that is going to be like precious oil running down on the head. That's going to be as life-giving as waters flowing in dry places. Through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. 
Now, we would hear that and we'd be like, man, there must be something awesome going on in Abraham's family. Maybe by like looking at his story, we'll get like four or five principles for how to work out tough conversations with those that we're closest to, right? But I got news for you. Abraham's family is not like that, okay? Abraham's family is characterized by the same kinds of conflicts that characterize every single family on the face of the earth. In many ways, their conflicts and their story is even worse than probably most of ours sitting here. Because when you look at the story of Abraham and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and so on and so forth, what you find is they have a sordid history of conflict. Relationships that are characterized by deceit, by hatred, by jealousy, even by like attempted murder. And we look at that story and we're just like, geez, man, that, that's so messed up. And why, why is it that Abraham's family is so broken? Well, it's because Abraham's family has the same family tree that the rest of us do. It's a family tree that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where that, that first conflict took place, not between people, but between people and God. And God had made us in his image, made us to live in loving relationship with him and in partnership with him to take care of and steward and, and watch over this amazing world that he had created. And yet, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, decided, no, we don't want to live in relationship with God. We want to live according to our own terms and by our own rules. They turn their backs on God. And, and one of the things that I find is so incredible is that the moment they turn their backs on God, what, what do we see? We see conflict in their relationship with each other. We see their relationship is now one that's characterized by shame, by conflict, and by pain. You see, Abraham's family is no different than all of our families. We are all broken people. We are descendants of Adam and Eve. We've inherited that bent toward conflict. So why? Why study Abraham's story? Well, it's because of that promise. Because we believe that while there is a family tree of brokenness, there's also a family tree that leads to the healer, to the reconciler. That God, when he said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your family, was pointing to a day when he, out of this broken mess, would bring wholeness and healing. And so to help us to see that story and to go on that journey, we're actually going to be looking at Abraham's family. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Abraham's two grandsons. We are introduced to these grandsons in Genesis chapter 25, where it reads the following. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted her prayer, and Rebekah uh, granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But what we learn pretty early on is that there's something really odd about this pregnancy. Because pretty early on, Rebecca feels like something's not quite right. I'm feeling some kicks, but I'm not feeling just a couple little happy kicks. I'm feeling some punches and some uppercuts too. It feels like there's actually UFC is going on in my womb, and I want to know why that is. And so she actually goes to God, and she's like, what is up? And God is just like, hey, well, you guys prayed for a child. I heard your prayers, and guess what? You're not just going to have one son. You're going to have two. There are twins in your womb. At first, as... You know, a family that originally, parents who'd originally told they couldn't get pregnant, I'd be like, wow, that's, that's amazing, that's incredible. But then God goes on and he says this, there are two nations 
that are in your womb, two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, I don't know about you, but as a first-time parent, if that was the message that I got, I'd be like, I see a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of really frustrating days. But that's the promise. God says you are going to have children, but they are going to be children who will enter this world in conflict with one another. They will be children who are constantly struggling with one another. In, in many ways, isn't that just like a microcosm of the human race? That we enter into this world constantly looking out for number one. And as a result, it leads us into conflict with each other. We enter into this world wrestling and fighting. But, but I want us to take a specific look because this story, which really is a story of the human race in, 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 in uh, up close and personal, I want us to take a look at the story because I really do believe that as we look at the story of these two sons, we're going to learn a lot about what it means to truly bring about healing. So let's, let's get introduced to these two men. The first son, the older brother, the, the one twin who comes out first, he's older by, uh, than Jacob by like a whopping three seconds probably. His name is Esau. And uh, this is what we learn about Esau. It says that the first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Now the name Esau sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for hairy. Okay, Esau comes out and he's just covered in hair. And so that's what they call him. They basically say he's the hairy one. But we learn a couple other things about Esau. We learn that as he grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. We learn that Esau is a man's man. Okay, Esau was the crocodile Dundee. He was the Bear grills of his day. This is the dude who loved to live out in the wild. And, and he was a guy who would go out and he would catch his food. He was the kind of guy who would run it down, beat it up with his bare hands, throw it over his shoulders and bring it home to cook it up. This is a guy who could live in any single circumstance. He is a tough man. He is a big man. He's a strong man. He is a hairy man. Okay, a man's man. That is Esau. Then we're introduced to his younger brother, younger by about three seconds, and his name is Jacob. And we learn that Jacob actually, when he's born, he actually comes out like grabbing on Esau's heel. All right? So his name literally means usurper or heel grabber. That's, that's Jacob's name. And Jacob is a very different kind of man. It says that Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. You see, Jacob was a guy who, who liked a comfortable life. Yeah, he, would ha he, would, he was a shepherd. He would work with animals, but domesticated animals. Because he really was a guy who enjoyed comfort, liked being around the house, lounging on pillows, helping out in the kitchen, cooking delicious food with his mom. I mean, he is kind of the more gentle of the two. Jacob is the guy that you might see on the cover of a GQ magazine or a male model, okay? Not hairy, smooth, gentle, mild-mannered, enjoying a life of pillows and fine dining. Right off the bat, the reason these details are included for us is because what, what Moses, the author, is trying to help us see is that these guys, not only do they come into the world at odds, but they kind of have the deck stacked against them because we often have a hard time relating to people that we don't share a whole lot in common with, don't we? It's hard enough to make new friends. It's even tougher when you find yourself in a conversation with somebody where you have nothing in common. No shared life experiences, no shared history. You might even disagree on certain foundational things. I mean, we've all had those encounters and parties, right? Where you're mingling with people and you get like two minutes into a conversation and you're just like, oh no, 
This is not the conversation I want to find myself in. Those are the conversations, right, where you finish a glass of wine faster than you normally would because it's your excuse, right? You pound that and you're just like, oh, look at that. I'm empty. I'm, I'm going to go refill my drink. And you, like, get out of there as fast as possible. You all know what I'm talking about. I'll be honest, you know, I've, I've had those moments, right? If I find myself in a party, we're talking, somebody starts talking about sports, it's over, okay? Because, honestly, I am not a person who likes sports. I will own that. I am not a dude who watches sports. We don't have cable. We don't have ESPN. You start talking to me about who's going to be the starting pitcher or who the quarterback is or who's in the playoffs or who's a wild card. The only thing that I know about wild cards is that they're really awesome in poker, Okay, I have no idea. When you start talking about, like, March Madness, I start getting very, very nervous, okay, because that's Lent for me. You know, so, like, so, so if we're talking sports now, we start talking about Star Wars, I will be your friend for at least the next several hours because I love that kind of stuff. I can talk about movies all day long. We all have these, these things, right, that we, if a person, if we're different, we don't really spend a whole lot of time investing in that relationship. Something that we all do as people. And what we can see right off the bat is Esau and Jacob couldn't be more different. They couldn't be bigger opposites. But they also have the deck stacked, uh, stacked against them for another reason. Listen to this. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So what we learn is that actually mom and dad are in this picture too. And they've already chosen sides. They each one already has their favorite, don't they? We're told that Isaac loves Esau because he eats of his game. Isaac looks at his older son and he's just like, now that is the man who's going to take over this family. He's a man's man. He goes out and he, he catches his food and he brings it back for us. He's the kind of guy, he's a warrior. He's going to go out, he's going to take over other tribes. He's going to establish our boundaries. This is the dude who's going to rule my family. That's my boy. And then you got Rebecca. And she's like, oh, I really, oh, I just love Jacob. He's so helpful. Anytime I'm in the kitchen, he, he comes in, he helps out with the cooking. He's so gentle and mild-mannered, such a sweet boy. That's my son. That's my boy. Now, can you imagine, like, growing up and you know your parents have favorites? Imagine being Jacob and, and asking your dad, you know, hey, dad, can, can we... Can we, you know, go out into the fields to work in the sheep? Or, or can you teach me how to hunt? No, too busy. I'm already going on a shooting expedition with your, with your brother Esau. Why don't you just stay home and milk some goats? Or what if, you're, what if you're Esau? You're coming to your mom, Rebecca, and you're just like, hey, there's some couple girls I'm interested in, thinking of maybe trying to find a wife. Any, any tips, any hints on dating? She's like, oh, you know, I'm not really too, too busy for you because I'm spending time fawning over Jacob. Can imagine how this would cause like an even deeper rift. And isn't it, again, I find that if, if we're looking at this story as a mirror, I think that this is really telling for many of us, right? Because often our conflicts are actually exacerbated by our family, not helped by them. I'm sure we can all think of certain biases that we've inherited. Sure, we can all think of certain ways in which our family loves to chime in on certain conflicts and issues and relationships, and how divisive that can ultimately be. You see, these are seeds that are sown very early on in the story of Jacob and Esau. And oftentimes, it's, it's these kinds of things that then end up playing out over the course of generations, right? 
As we not only enter this world in conflict, but those conflicts are exacerbated by our interests, by our biases, by our communities, by our families, by our friends. And we just end up perpetuating these cycles that go on and on. What we see when Jacob and Esau grow up, the conflict just doesn't get any better. It gets worse and worse and worse. And we're going to be looking at it in in some really stark detail over the next several weeks. But it leads us to that question, right? Of what can possibly overturn these cycles of violence? Because it's not simply about gaining a few strategies or principles. It's not about reading a self-help book. It's about acknowledging there's something wrong in our hearts. That we need our very hearts to be made new. That if if conflict and division and and fighting with one another, something goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, then what we need is someone who can break the cycle and transform us from the inside out. But remember that promise that God gave to Abraham. That's why that promise is so important. Because what God is saying is he's saying, look, Abraham, I can take even your messed up family and out of it bring blessing for all the families of the earth. And when I, when I hear that, I hear hope. I think many of us, we feel so bound by past conflicts and past hurts that we just don't see any way out. And we're like, can God do anything here? And what God is saying in this promise to Abraham and ultimately his promise to you and me is like, yes, I can. You do not have to be bound by your history. What you need is what you, you need to look forward to the day when I will bring that blessing to all families. Because actually, this this promise to Abraham is a note that's picked up throughout the scriptures. All throughout the Old Testament, there's this longing from the people for a day when a child of Abraham would come. When this child would not perpetuate the cycles of violence and conflict, but would actually bring them to an end and bring healing and peace and life in their place. There was this longing for a greater Jacob who would come And fulfill that promise to Abraham's family by making of many nations one people who are reconciled to God and to one another. One who would heal that division between us and our creator. Who would usher us into God's family. And who would call us out of the overflow of that reconciliation to bring healing in a broken world. We catch hints and glimmers of it when we read books like Isaiah and we hear from the prophets how someday a child will be born and and people will sing for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love how every single one of those titles is a relational title. Wonderful counselor, the one who with wisdom can bring an end to our wars. Mighty God, the one who is powerful and yet in our midst. Everlasting Father, a Father who loves us unconditionally for all time. Prince of Peace, the one who brings shalom, God's wholeness and healing into a broken world. There's this longing for a son of Abraham to come. And and what we get to celebrate, what we celebrated on Christmas, what we're still celebrating today is that that son has come. It's that son that we celebrate on Christmas Day. 
when we speak of Jesus Christ as the one who was promised. Because I don't know if you caught it in that song that we, uh, that we read earlier, Psalm 133, how that psalm ends. It says this. It says that it's on the mountains of Zion that the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Zion is simply another name for Jerusalem. And there was this promise that one day a son of Abraham would come to Jerusalem and he would lay down his life to bring an end to all our conflicts. He would lay down his life in order to reconcile us to the Father with whom we are estranged. But more than that, he would rise again to new life to show us that he's overcome our sin. He's overcome conflict and death. And he invites us now into a new kind of life, a life that he generously get, puts within us by restoring our, the covenant with God from the inside out. And the invitation throughout this series is to go on a journey with him. I love how Isaiah 2, 3 says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Because Jesus says, now that I have reconciled you to God your Father, so one day I will come again. And when I do, I will inaugurate a day when you will no longer learn the ways of war. Where spears will be beaten into plowshares and swords into pruning hooks. Where nation will no longer learn war against nation anymore. They will do no harm on my holy mountain. That's the city that we're journeying toward. We don't have to wait for that city to come before we start putting into practice the lessons that Jesus can teach us. Before we start learning to dwell within the reconciliation and the peace that we've received. And out of the overflow to learn to give healing in broken relationships. To bring wholeness to broken communities. To bring forgiveness and new life to families torn apart by conflict. I don't know what you are bringing into church this morning. If you're bringing fresh hurts, new wounds that were already leveled just over the past couple of holiday uh, celebrations, or whether you're coming in with deep old scars, saying, I don't know if there's any hope for this relationship. What's happened is just so far past. My promise to you is this, that as we journey through this story, Jesus is going to teach us what it looks like to walk with him on a path of reconciliation. What we're going to see is that although this story is a mess and our stories are a mess, Jesus lovingly enters into the mess in order to bring healing and wholeness. And so if you are here this morning and that's what you desire, then my invitation is to come with us. Join us as we learn from him. As we look at the story of Jacob and Esau, and yes, see some uncomfortable things, uncomfortable things about ourselves, but also through it as we use it as a lens to ultimately point us to the greater son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who is our Prince of Peace, and see how he can bring healing and wholeness where there's division. That's our invitation to you throughout this series. And so as we begin this series, I want to I wrap up this message by beginning in an attitude of prayer, coming before God and asking him to be our leader. Would you pray with me? 
Lord God, your word says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil of your presence being poured upon our heads. It's like life-giving streams in dry places. Lord, it's something that we long for and that we confess we are powerless to achieve on our own. That oftentimes we bring our own mess into the midst of it. We bring our own junk, our own wounds into new relationships and everything seems poisoned by it. And so Lord, as we walk through this series, we pray that you would help us to cling to that promise that through Christ, all the nations of the family will be blessed. To learn to lean on you and your presence in our lives and your guidance and your wisdom and ultimately that relationship we have with you that out of the overflow we can become people of healing, ambassadors of Christ who've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Lead us and guide us over these weeks as we learn together. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, that we say, Amen.